0: this episode of history replays today the richmond history podcast is brought to you by frame nation frame nation is your one stop go down there if you have any kind of framing needs head on down to frame nation they're at 11 south 15th street in the shako design district conveniently located they have you know, there's just parking all around on that area so it's not inconvenient you need something displayed something framed you head down to frame nation whether it's you know high end art whether it's you know a family photo which is sometimes more valuable than high end art whatever it is they will get you what you need whether you're looking for museum quality maybe you're looking for something a little quirky maybe something something different something with pizzazz but whatever it is will not overshadow whatever you're trying to display go down talk to frame nation their staff is fantastic they're incredibly helpful if you can't bring what you need down there you know just Describe it to them. They'll help you out. They have everything you need. And uh, check them out. You can go to FrameNation.net. You can follow FrameNation on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Wherever you follow anyone, follow FrameNation. I do. FrameNation. This is History Replays Today, the Richmond History Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Jeff Major. I hope you're having a spectacular day. On the show, I have Scott Mayer. He is the Associate Director of College Counseling at St. Christopher's School, where he also helps out with the, the JV baseball team. He also coaches two Little League baseball teams. He's on the uh, a member of the board of Richmond Little League, and he's also the co-author of with the late W. Harrison Daniel of a book called Baseball and Richmond, a history of the professional game 1884-2000. to 2000. That book is really awesome, um, and it's available anywhere you get books, Barnes & Nobles, Amazon, where, you know, wherever you'd like to check out books. And in case you've not guessed it from the guest, uh, this episode is about baseball history and RVA. And I really don't think you need to be a baseball fan to like the episode um there's just some really amazing stories you know told through baseball and, and as well you know if you're interested in the city and what's going on now the history of baseball in Richmond can give you some context for the you know what's the hottest topic to discuss uh is you know the new stadium or the lack thereof of a new stadium um you know kind of giving it some historical context within that conversation um I hope that that this was able to do that some. Um, but before we get to baseball anymore, I do want to thank all the listeners, everyone who voted to make uh, this the best local podcast in Richmond Magazine. Thank you very much. That's an incredible honor. Thanks. Um, it means a great deal to me um, that fo- folks support the show by voting. Um, every time I get an email, I love it. You know, Jeff Major J E F F M A J E R at History dot you know tweets that I get at history replays, messages on Facebook, it all means a great deal. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, and tell people about the podcast. Um, it also helps out if you can donate. Just like uh, Jacob, Jacob donated. Thank you very much, Jacob. Um, I appreciate the email you sent as well. He had some great ideas for some some shows that will actually be coming up soon. And um, you can sponsor the podcast, just like Frame Nation, just like River City Segs. um, And River City Segs is the premier Segway tour company in Richmond. It's the only Segway tour company in Virginia with an indoor Segway-specific training area. And that training area is incredibly important. You know, a lot of people are not sure if Segway is for them. That's the way to go. You know, go down to River City Segs. It's at uh, 1805 East Gray Street. It's in an 1884 firehouse. Um we'll let you try it out for free, right? Just hop on a Segway, ride around the training course, see how it feels, see if it's for you or not. Just no commitment and you know, just come give it a shot. But you can also follow you can find out more information about River City Segs at rivercitysegs.com. You can follow them at @804segs. You can also check them out on Facebook River City Segs, on Pinterest and you know, go down to River City Segs, 1805 East Gray Street. Now, if you have not heard the first baseball episode I did, go check that out. Uh, it was with uh, John O'Connor, who's who uh, um, covers sports for the Richmond Times-Dispatch, and a couple other guests that actually had little uh, little snippets on there as well. Um, go check it out. and That, along with all the other episodes, are available on uh iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you're listening to this. Um, and if you enjoy this or that one, you know, write a review for the podcast, that'd be awesome. Um but before we jump start talking about this, jump right into the conversation, I do have to admit that I jump around <laughs> on this pod on this episode. Um, you know, there was so much to cover. I kept forgetting things. We'd start talking about one thing and I'd say, Oh man, what about I just remember so it's not as chronological, it was not quite as organized as some of the other conversations that I've had, so apologies about that but you know frankly the the early history of professional baseball in richmond is a little choppy itself um which will you'll hear within the conversation um so let's go ahead and get to scott mayer and you know started out asking about you know why he's you know he, he obviously really likes baseball but you know why he started researching rva's professional baseball in the first
1: place was working at the University of Richmond at the time at, in, in the admission office. Uh, so, on the other side of the desk, mm-hmm. as we call it in, in the college counseling, college right. admission profession. Uh, you know, with that, I had a lot of travel and had time to work on a master's thesis and, and to work on a master's. My focus was really on colonial history, revolutionary period, and I love pirate history. And not the baseball pirates, but the actual pirates in the 1700s, uh, <laughs> you know, you know, down off the Carolina coast and in the Caribbean, mm-hmm. and really want to do something on the Carolina pirates and their impact on the colonial commerce or economy of, of Virginia and North Carolina. Mm-hmm. The first book I found was a book called The Carolina Pirates and Their Impact on the Colonial Economy of <laughs> Virginia and North Carolina. It was done as a doctoral dissertation in 1896, And in 1996, it was still in print. Wow. So it it told me this is kind of the definitive book on the topic. Yeah. So I was talking with the the graduate advisor and and trying to figure out what I should do. And and he said, well, with your interest in baseball, you ought to talk with Dr. Outland, who was a a professor in political, uh, political science. And he said, talk with Dr. Harrison Daniel, who was a retired professor who still maintained offices, was still on campus every day. He had just published a biography of Jimmy Fox, who was his childhood hero. Right. And Dr. Daniel was doing a series of Saturday morning lectures on baseball's golden age in the the thirties, forties and fifties. He and I started talking and soon it led into me doing a masters thesis on the, the beginnings of professional baseball in Richmond, focusing on the years 1883 through 1932. That's pretty fantastic. And um, why the professional, I mean,
0: was there not, I mean, it's probably easier to access, um, but just not, you know, because especially at college, it seems like that would be, well, in the, did they, I, mean, I don't even know if they played, like, what was first. I mean, I'm assuming they, the amateurs first.
1: But. Right, right, the amateurs, you know, the amateur baseball really started, it you know, really started through the Civil War era, is when baseball really started to spread. Right. And one thing I found in doing research for the thesis, you know, everyone has kind of a nostalgic look on baseball and baseball's past. You know, even HBO did a series in the late 80s, early 90s of, you know, when it was just a game. Right. But if you really look at it, Baseball, at, at that kind of level, has never been just a game. It's always been about business. Right. I mean, even before organized professional clubs came about, the earliest teams were baseball clubs. They were more social clubs. Mm-hmm. That social clubs would get together, play a game in the afternoon, and the big event was really a dinner hosted by the home club that evening. Okay, And then it's starting to become a competition. They would start to bring in club members, more for their baseball prowess than right. their you know their social status mm-hmm. but for many people joining the club was to try and improve their social status right uh, so it, it had its roots there then they started paying people to come to play baseball and they started realizing the general public got interested in it sure and they could charge people to come and watch the games right. so e- even in in the 1860s with the social clubs, Mm-hmm. Baseball was more about business. Fair enough. Yeah, and
0: um, I guess you definitely get a lot more social ranking if you're a club that has good players. Exactly. So, um, but are they playing other clubs, or they play themselves? Like
1: they, in, there uh, were there were a lot of there? organized clubs, uh, you know, within the city of Richmond. In fact, the first chapter of the book, which comes out of a, an article that Dr. Daniel wrote for the Virginia Cavalcade, mm-hmm. which was the magazine from the the science or the 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 Virginia. Um, you know, the Virginia Library. Right. It talked about the different social clubs that were throughout town. They would travel and play clubs from other cities. And then businesses would also start to get their own teams. That, uh, you know, Henry Boschen is the guy who's kind of credited for really developing the, the first professional team. He mm-hmm. had a, a shoe manufacturing company, and employees from his factory played on his team Right. Okay. and then it started getting to the point where a lot of other companies had their teams and they would give players jobs in, in the factory but really their job was to play baseball right sure here hold this for a while exactly and then Will go afterwards,
0: um, but in and I guess so. That first pro team is it? Are, is there an organized league, or is it just a guy who's like, I got a team and I'm going to make money by playing exhibition games here and
1: there? They, that's Richmond's first team was that way, but they recognized to really get accepted in baseball they had to get into an organized league right? and, and that's where 1884 came in a group of business leaders it essentially hired away all the players from Boshan's team mm-hmm. and, and they joined the, the first league that, that Richmond was in they actually ended up doing incredibly well uh, and Later, towards the the end of that season, the American Association, which was one of the the two recognized major leagues, the National mm-hmm. League and the American Association at the time, which is different from the current American League, that league was had the team in Washington had financial difficulties, and Richmond got brought into that league for the last last. You know, a couple weeks of the season. I think five or six weeks of the season. So right. for five or six weeks in 1884, Richmond was actually in the major leagues.
0: That's awesome. Man. You know, you gotta take what you get. Exactly. So, um, and that was one thing that was weird. It's like, what's the difference other than like, is there a threshold of what says this is major leagues and minor leagues? Because especially at that point, you know, now there's the tiered system, but at that point, it
1: was just a bunch of leagues. The the National League was the recognized major league in the 1880s, 1890s. The American Association started as, as kind of a spinoff from that. It, mm-hmm. it was a, a group, primarily Midwestern league owners that had their backgrounds as brewers or distillers, mm-hmm. separated out over a dispute of being able to sell alcoholic games, uh, over a dispute of being able to adjust ticket prices. National wanted wanted the ticket price to be 50 cents. They wanted to be able to drop it to 25, so kind of the, the everyday person could right. come to the game. But also labor laws around Sunday were very different in the Midwest as they were in the East. A lot of the East Coast had laws that prohibited labor or work to happen on Sundays. Right. The Midwest was a little more liberal with that, so they wanted to be able to have games sure. on Sundays. They wanted to sell their alcohol and lower ticket prices so they separated and that's why you know the American Association is often known as the Beer and Whiskey League right you know there was a book that came out in the late 80s uh, early 90s on the history of of that league called the Beer and Whiskey League by David Nemec and a new book just came out last year it's on my nightstand I'm hoping Mm -hmm. to get to it before the summer's (laughs) over uh, called The Summer of Beer and Whiskey it really focuses on Chris Vonderhuy and the uh, and the St. Louis Cardinals excellent Uh yeah Uh, yeah and, you know, so that
0: actually is, I mean, this is going to go way into the future, um, yeah. we'll get back. But first of all, it wasn't until 1966 that they sold beer at games in Richmond? In the 1880s, they sold beer. There was a bar underneath the okay. grandstands. So that's they what I was wondering, because yeah. I know it's... Uh, I, I saw that it said it was the first when they first had a Parker
1: Field, but I was like, through that the, all that time, they didn't sell any beer. To my understanding, I know it, there was reference to the bar below the stands back in the 1880s, okay. and in the early time period throughout the 80s, 90s, and the early 1900s, the Richmond crowd was known for being pretty rowdy right, and a pretty yeah. rough-and-tumble crowd. And mm-hmm. In fact, there were articles in the various newspapers Highlighting how rough the crowds could be here in Richmond, and, right? You know, the owners made a big emphasis of trying to have ladies' days because right. the thought if the ladies were present, the gentlemen would uh, behave a little bit differently. That's fantastic. So they would often have discounted days for for ladies, or ladies could be free if accompanied by a gentleman. Yeah, because there's some about uh, you know, I guess the umpire a couple times
0: umpires are you know, you know attacked. Pit with bottles and all kinds of exciting stuff like exactly. that. Exactly. Um, so, and where this this first teams? I mean, where
1: where are these guys playing? It the, I mean, there's I mean, actually been a lot of different ballparks around. You know that before that first park that was at in that area right near the the Lee Monument, uh, the the old fairgrounds, which yeah. is where Monroe Park is. That was okay. There was so a baseball field there in in the 1870s. There were actually exhibition games of some of the National League teams were played down there. Oh, wow. Uh, There was, of course, a lot of people know about the ballpark down on Mayo Island. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the late 1890s, there was West End Field, which was at the corner of Vine and Main. Right. Uh, There was a ballpark there for about three years. Then, you know, the owner decided to build a new ballpark. Over on Broad Street, near Broad and Lombardi, right near where the uh, the Lowe's is today. Yeah, okay. it, it was on land leased from the RFMP Railroad, and those two ballpark locations were kind of interesting because they were on different trolley lines. Right, and when the team moved to the to the Broad Street Park the old trolley line tried to buy in to the ball club and they wanted to get it moved back because they were losing a lot of revenue. Sure. And there was actually a legal battle between the two trolley traction companies in town. Right. So, again, going back to the idea of baseball as business, in the 1890s you had legal disputes from the trolley companies fighting over the location of the ballpark because of how it impacted their business. Yeah, and it didn't have any, they didn't have any ownership. Right, I understand. They at the time, n- no, they, it was There's, owned by by someone separate from the trolley companies. Although one of the the guys in the ownership group, uh, you know, eventually one of the trolley companies did have someone from the trolley company in, in on the ownership team.
0: Okay, so. yeah, because that's what I didn't like when they're suing. Just like, yeah, you, know, you moved, and it's like the interstate sues because you moved your business. Like, yeah. wait, what are you talking about? Um, but the, the does the trolley have? Um, I mean, I'm assuming the trolley has a pretty big impact, right? Because I mean, you can't really have a field downtown, and people have to be able to get to
1: to where it is, it, right? So, Right, and, and that's why most of the locations from all the old ballparks were within easy access for the people, either on the trolley lines, uh, the roads. When the ballpark was first moved to Mayo Island, that transportation idea was was considered because it was easy access for, for the Manchester side of the city, the downtown side, it was easy for people to get there. And at that time, parking wasn't an issue because people weren't driving. Right.
0: And so, but these early fields are nothing really... Lo- I mean, I know a lot of uh, with the polo grounds, never even had an outfield. I mean, they're, an outfield they're wall, they're not right? The and then concrete,
1: they're not the concrete and steel structures we think of today. They were a little more than an enclosed, enclosed open lot that's a high fence put up so that people couldn't look through. You had to pay to get in. Right. Uh, you know, many of the games, particularly in the eighties, nineties, early nineteen hundreds, they used the same game ball. So yeah. the fences were way back so that the ball would stay within the confines of the park. Right. Um, you know, it, it was such a big deal of a home run that one of the two Broad Street parks. There's another one just a, a couple blocks up the road, close to where uh, the Science Museum is and the DMV building, kind of that parking mm-hmm. lot in between the two. I believe that's where a ballpark was. But the fences were so big that it was actually made special note in the paper when a guy actually hit one out out over the fence. Wow. And, because it only happened once throughout the season. That's And so
0: this is not even Richmond specific, but, um, I mean, it's a really amazing thing that you get to keep the ball now right because that's a magical part of especially as a little kid it's like oh, I got a right.
1: ball like when does that start do you know I, I don't know when that started I, I would think it sometime in the 30s 40s yeah because uh, it's, it's amazing to think that someone going into the stands and being like yo give me that ball back yeah <laughs> you know they would use the same ball and right it would be thrown back and by the end of the game the ball could be pretty scuffed up pretty dirty and sure particularly when they didn't have lights umpires were you know having difficulty seeing the ball and players having difficulty right seeing the ball because of a pretty dirty ball as it got to later in the afternoon
0: yeah and to the advantage of
1: the pitcher as well exactly i mean you get to You know, work that, you know, oblong Mm -hmm. looking thing. And that's when the, uh, you know, the spitball was still legal and guys would do all kinds of things to doctors. Sure. The teams as well, like, I think it's really interesting that, you know,
0: while they're pro teams, they're just the Richmond team. Right? And there's no nickname. Right? The nicknames come organically.
1: A lot of times they came from the newspapers. Right. uh, Because. You know they they were the the Richmond baseball club or the Virginia baseball club, and the newspapers didn't want to necessarily write that out. So the nicknames were often described by what their uniforms were. You know when they were wearing blue jerseys, they were called the Bluebirds. Um, you know when they switched to all black uniforms, they were called the Crows. Right. Or you know maybe at one point they were the Colts because you know Tim West who was the 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 manager at the time, you know Tim West Colts, you know the young stallions going out on the field,
0: right? And that seems so, like one of the more popular names, Colts, right? I mean, it seemed like that the, one lasted. The Colts for a long were around
1: time. for a long time. Yeah, uh, but Bluebirds was there for a few years. Uh, the Crows, um, the the Reds, because they had red shirts. Um, you know, sometimes there were the Johnny Rebs. Sometimes the lawmakers or the legislatures mm-hmm. taking on the, the Richmond's, you know, right. basis as being the capital city.
0: And did you see any evidence of that being, uh, uh, somewhat insulting? Because it seems like, like, it's one of the weird things, like, I don't know. To me, it's, like, one of the more insulting things you can do is, like, if I just sit here and continue to call you Dave. And you're like, yo, my name's Scott. You know, it's like, no, (laughs) thanks, Dave. Um, but, you know, teams from Newport News, right? Like, I know a couple times
1: they were the shipbuilders, but if, you know... Right, the shipbuilders or the TARS or... Sometimes they would even, the newspapers would hold contests Mm -hmm. and again to try and promote ladies coming. They often limited it had to be ladies that submitted the the names, you know, and they could receive a season ticket Mm -hmm. if if their winning name got picked. And you know, there were some instances from the paper where they consulted with the ball club. Um other times the the newspaper didn't on their own. You would even find even within an article in the paper the the team would be referred to as the Colts in the headline. But then the legislators or the lawmakers within the first sentence. That's you know, amazing. In the headlines they liked the shorter names because it was easier to put in a headline. And, sure. And that's you have to remember the newspapers in the eighties and nineties weren't multi section, multi pages like we've gotten used to. The you know, for a big part of the time I was doing research, the newspaper was only maybe six pages. That's and, good for you as a researcher. <laughs> yeah. Well that was the hardest part of the project. You know, I probably had three to four hundred hours of microfilm research uh, going back because there weren't a lot of primary documents from the ball clubs themselves. Sure. You know, the the best source of information was going back to the newspapers. Right. And there wasn't a a clear sports section. Mm -hmm. So you'd have to kind of scour the newspaper and that also led to probably part of the hardest part of the project. You'd easily get distracted by what else was going on at the time. Right. And and the... uh
0: the, they're not selling, like, you know, like jerseys or hats, are, are
1: they? I mean, there's nothing going on like that. Not that I could. Programs were the big thing. Okay. You know, they'd sell programs. They'd sell pennants. Um, you know, little things like that. Okay. Uh, in, in fact, you'll you'll find people that have collections. Uh, in fact, the Virginia Historical Society this past weekend had a, a, mem- a tour of the memorabilia baseball memorabilia section that they had there i wasn't able to get there so i didn't get to uh, that's fantastic get to do the tour but but it would just say richmond well richmond information about the players and a scorecard no i mean like the i
0: mean the the thing just says the richmond baseball club like it wouldn't they would they they
1: they would often use the same nickname that the paper because once it got to be an accepted nickname
0: okay they'd call themselves that and um One of the things I guess you were talking about is how the in the book about was really interesting is, I guess, first of all, that blacks were allowed at the games and that they're rooting against the home team because they're white.
1: (laughs) Well, it was often seen, particularly in the 80s and 90s, you know, when I, I didn't get a chance to do enough on the race relations within the city, but being the capital of the Confederacy and a lot of people involved with the ball club had ties. To some of the old confederacy, and I think that played a role in it mm-hmm. uh, now, I also found it interesting there were certain years though where the black fans that came were rooting for for the white Richmond team right, so it, I think it depended kind of on the ownership group and maybe some other things that were going on in the city yeah and I mean is there any i mean assume it hat would have to be,
0: but I mean is there you know black and white sections or is that right I just mean, just
1: like society was yeah. separated? That there were separate sections, and usually the, the section for, for the black visitors w- were farther down. They weren't the prime seats. They weren't right behind the plate. Uh, you know, found one picture where it was even, you know, stands way out in the outfield, whereas all the other stands were between the bases and behind the plate. Okay, fair enough. Mm-hmm. And um, is there,
0: uh, also, is there any... Uh, because I do actually, there was one time when, speaking of names and the Blacks, where they tried to call themselves the Confederates or something like and
1: they actually had enough pull that they, there, they, were, they there changed was, the name, right? Right, there was, an, well, that that was in the, a new startup league uh, came Yeah, out, and that's like the, much later, I guess. The Outlaw but, League. Well, no, in the 19, no, early 1900s, uh, you know, when the precursor to, the Federal League was the United States League, and th- these were called outlaw leagues. You know, mm-hmm. going back to your question about organized baseball and kind of it's the National League was the Premier League, and they created a national agreement with the minor leagues that kind of preserved their geographic territory, and they would have different relationships between the different minor leagues and the major league. They agreed mm-hmm. by the same set of rules. Any team that didn't pay the national league or subscribe to the national agreement they build as an outlaw league. And this one outlaw league tried to rival it or label itself as a major major league, rivaling the American and national leagues. This was in the early nineteen teens. And there was a team that was started in Richmond. A lot of Richmond folks really like the prospect because they were looking at it as a way to kind of booster the city mm-hmm. you know so the national papers would have all these big major league cities in Richmond together with Pittsburgh New York with DC right Richmond would would be there as a way to try and build up the city mm-hmm. Uh and, and that that team was called the Johnny Raps at the time. They played at at, at Lee Leap, Leap Park or Lee Field, which was on Boulevard near near Moore and, and Boulevard. But right. they the league didn't make it for a year. You know, Richmond was one of the only cities that actually recognized it as a major league. Everybody else looked at it as a as a lower level league. Um, right. And, and the league financially just didn't make it. Yeah, and that's also
0: amazing. How many of those leagues don't make it? Damn. I mean, there's, there's a good portion of those early chapters that are basically like they entered this league, had this record, the league went out. In, in fact, that's
1: why... From year to year. That's why for my thesis, I, I focused on those early, that first 50 years, because in 32, when Eddie Moores purchased the Colts, that's when we saw stability with baseball. You right. know, Moores was around until, until the mid-50s, so for 20 years. He provided stability with a the team, then for, for 10 years... We had the International League team and the Richmond Virginians. And, and then when they left and then the Braves came in in 66, you know, we had another long history uh, mm-hmm. with, with the Braves being here. So there was a lot of stability. The leagues were stable. So it, as a researcher, it was more interesting right. to go back when, when there was a lot of turnover. So in – like who are these guys that start these leagues? I mean, it
0: seems like you have they're they're businessmen. So you have to have enough money, yeah. but they don't seem to have enough sense to understand that it either how to make it work or that it's not going to work.
1: Well, well, part of it is depending on on where they are you and, know
0: and especially when it's happened like 10 to, you know ten years in a row someone started a league thats yeah. failed and then you're like oh I'm gonna be the guy that's gonna do it it doesn't seem like I do it any differently
1: interestingly a lot of the guys that were involved in, in baseball ownership at the time were involved in other other entertainment industries okay uh, the vaudeville parks or the shows or or things like that uh, what they called amusement parks at the time which is different than what we think of 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 bush gardens and king's dominion with the the roller coasters but a carousel carriage parks bicycles uh you know boat rides things like that Mm -hmm. um a lot of those guys sure invested in baseball but it was also people interested in the city you know they were they were lawyers they were doctors they were finance guys um you know they were prominent prominent citizens within the city that want to develop a team as a way to kind of booster the city as well yeah because it is
0: definitely some gimmicky you know there are they have a lot of, like especially even in the early days like because you mentioned ladies day like i love right. the, the men's day to where like if you bring in bring a woman you get in free or something which is awesome like because right. as especially as white men we don't get enough in this world right it, we need discounts it,
1: it was all about though not only trying to get people there but remember when they were doing that was at the time when the crowds were known for being really rowdy. Sure. So they wanted the, you know, we use the term co-ed, they wouldn't have used that term, but they wanted, uh, you know, they wanted something that was going to bring a little more civility to Mm -hmm. the crowd rather than just a a bunch of drinking guys that are going to maybe throw bottles. Right. Because
0: they do actually end up continually um, seeming to uh, add on there that, this many people showed up plus a bunch of ladies. Right.
1: Like they always it seems like that's always like a tagline. In and, and the ladies were often included as plus a bunch of ladies because they weren't included in the official attendance because they didn't pay. Ah because they okay. came in free with the
0: Right. Fair enough. Um and the the Mayo Island park is like well that's there like well before it becomes Tatefield, right? So the first correct. try of that was like about
1: nineteen hundred. Correct, nineteen hundred. Okay you know a group of uh, uh, tried to several different times uh both the semi pro teams as well as pro teams. There were some pro teams that weren't in a formal league, mm-hmm. and they would try and get you know teams from other cities to come in and play. They usually couldn't make it a full season because you need it, need to be an affiliated league to to really be successful at it sure uh and those early parks were really just wooden structures, yeah, uh, you know it wasn't until I think in the 20s when they, they put in, you know, a more permanent field there.
0: Yeah, because it seems like a pretty good idea if you don't have a permanent field. Because, I mean, it yeah. floods so much that it's...
1: Exactly. And there were several times where, you know, the, the ballpark was in flood. Um, you know, we even were able to get some pictures uh, that right. were included in the book. We show one with, you know, the field in play and then one with, with the floodwaters. There. Right, some pretty brutal floods yeah. too, not just exactly. like a little bit, like a lot. Exactly. Flood.
0: Um the in the uh, for some reason the, the the baseballs you were talking about. So is, I'm sorry, I'm kinda of jumping around. Yeah. I normally have a little bit more like <laughs> kinda of excited. There's things I remember, I'm like, Oh my god, this was crazy. But uh um, Spaulding, they made a deal with Spalding to actually have an official baseball. Right. Which is genius for him to go around and say, Hey and I guess
1: what it was as a prize for the, the pennant winner. Right, right. Like, the- Use my ball. That was the recognized ball that was used throughout baseball. Okay. He, he was he and Rawlings were you know, running sporting goods companies. Yeah. And you know we're familiar with those names because we all have gear with Rawlings or or, or sure. Spalding on it. But yeah, you'd make a deal. He'd give you know several dozen baseballs to the league uh, to be used throughout the season, and his ball would be the official ball for and the league and he'd sponsor the trophy or, or sponsor something else like that but is that uh, because we know his name or is that why we know his name that's why we know his name right exactly so that's like a was his entrepreneurship of going around and getting his ball to be the, right. the official you wanna, ball you want to play with the
0: one that the pro teams playing with yeah. right the real or the, the, real the major
1: teams are playing with yeah
0: sure yeah um, and the $50 is a lot of money like that's I mean that's You know, these guys are actually making a little bit of scratch, right? Right. I mean, um, I mean, are are these guys able to? You know, I'm pretty sure some of the you know the the squirrels have to have like an off season job, but I mean, are these guys? Who are the players? Where are they coming from? These
1: guys were very much needing off season jobs. They they weren't making a lot of money playing baseball unless they got to the higher levels. Um, So they were definitely working. In fact. That's where, where spring training came about, because during the off season the players were having to go get real jobs. Sure. And usually a blue collar job. They weren't necessarily a, a white collar job. They, you know, they may or may not be in shape. And, right. and that's where the major league teams, even the major league players, it, right. were needing jobs like that. So that's where spring training came about, so that they could try and get the players in shape sure. before the season started. And then you'll also. You know, read about particularly in the '30s and '40s, major league players would do barnstorming tours after the major league season. Sure, play as long as the weather would hold out, and they would travel the country and play exhibition baseball games just to make extra cash.
0: Right, and they get to Cuba when the weather goes bad. Right, there's a lot of that. Um, and I mean, I know as well a lot of the early pro guys are really bad dudes.
1: Like, are (laughs) I mean, is that like the same thing with you know, In, in its early days baseball was seen as a little more rough and tumble yeah it, not as refined sure as it is today yeah there's and a lot of stories a lot of some really interesting characters years. and and you know from what I found in reading the papers the Richmond crowds helped support it
0: sure and, and I guess they were just as rough right I mean there's a lot of cheating yeah um, you know early on I mean I know the uh, you know John McGraw and whatnot. I mean those guys were like famous for cheating um, right you know in, in Baltimore um so I mean, is there um, a lot of uh, is a
1: lot of that going on? I mean, are there the, the newspapers didn't comment it, on it as much? Okay, um, but it was I'm sure an accepted part of the game at the time. So. Sure, um,
0: and the 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 illegal on Sundays thing I think is really awesome. Yeah, is again kind of kind of going pretty far forward, um, but they like protest and get arrested and. I'm trying to remember when that was
1: in the i believe it was in the 1920s the you know by that point you know it was in the 1890s that the american association formed in the midwest so the midwest by that point was already a little more liberal mm-hmm. on the sunday labor laws the northeast was starting to come around to it the southern states were a lot later in making mm-hmm. that adoption and it 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 really wasn't until what i think the 1830s before they started doing professional games on sundays in 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 the richmond area um, you know they tried some of those in the 20s where you know they try and even do just a makeup of a rainout game and the teams would be told that after the first inning once they started play the, all the players would be arrested so the teams would go out with only suit up nine players that day and not necessarily their regular nine, and they would have an agent from the uh, the ball clubs down at the police station ready to go ahead and bail the guys out after they got arrested um, because they tried to push to see if they could play. And the the legals, it, it was allowed you and I could go out and play a pickup game of baseball because we were just playing a game. Right. But these guys couldn't because it was their their normal job. Sure. Uh, So they couldn't play because labor laws restricted work on the Sabbath. That's amazing. I mean, that's... Which is very different from, you know, society today.
0: Sure, absolutely. Um, And the... I mean, to actually have dudes get arrested is pretty fantastic. I mean,
1: a $5 fine at that.
0: Yeah, which is, you know, if you're winning 50 bucks... You know, at the end of the... that's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot of money. Uh, and tickets to get in, it's like a uh, twenty cents. Yeah, you know, about fifty I mean,
1: cents, maybe seventy-five cents for a reserve chair.
0: Sure. Um, and uh, the what's up with a lot of the like the barnstorming stuff you're talking yeah. about, like the um, like when the you know the Yankees or whatever would come into Richmond. I, know, I think the A's came through um, a bunch of times are they going to be playing Richmond teams or are they playing you know the Yankees and the A's play together
1: depends I mean going all the way back to 1875 there were exhibition games of National League teams playing each other here in Richmond Uh, then throughout throughout the entire era of, of baseball that I researched you would read about exhibition games sometimes it was two Major League teams playing each other sometimes it was a Major League team Playing the the local Richmond professional team, then when we got into the the formally organized baseball that we know today with the the delineated minor leagues, and you know when we got the official arrangements with the farm system, sure that, that started with Branch Rickey and the Cardinals in the twenties. You know you would often have the major league team come in and play their their minor league affiliate, right? You know I I remember growing up in in the seventies in Cincinnati and. In the middle of the season, the Reds would have a game where they were playing Indianapolis, which was their AAA affiliate at the time. Um, Yeah.
0: I I grew up in um, Tidewater, so we used to see the Mets come down. And, um, yeah, that was good times. Dwight Dwight Gooden, Daryl Strawberry would come down and play. And
1: And um, I think it was a little more important then to both the Major League and the Minor League teams because... We didn't have TV where we could see the Major League stars on a, on, right. a, on a daily basis. You know, you had the the NBC Sunday or Saturday game of the week. Sure. And you only had one game that you got to see. You, you heard the game on the radio, but you didn't get to see your stars up close. Transportation was different. It was harder to get to cities to visit games. You know, sure. we, we were talking earlier how we've both traveled and visited several of the different Major League stadiums you know, if we were having this conversation in in the seventies, we might have each visited two or three stadiums, not twenty plus stadiums. Right, sure. Uh, so they would go out to keep that, pardon me, keep that interest. Yeah, uh, in those teams. And Richmond holds out pretty
0: far as far as being becoming a subsidiary of a team, right? I mean, because I know, I think that's, I think it was the International League was the first time that we really get organized within.
1: Right, when the International League came in, in the fifties, they had a working agreement with the Yankees. Um, um, but isn't in, there
0: wasn't there like a previous maybe it wasn't international, maybe it was a previous league that
1: they were they were in. It seemed like every other team had a major league. In, in, actually Richmond even started developing its own relationships as early as the thirties where when they moved up to a higher classification, they had a relationship with Danville where Danville would stream its players to the Richmond and Richmond would then stream its players on up the line as you go higher into the ranks. The farm system really didn't get as organized until the late 30s or 40s. Okay. Uh, and then and, and it's very different. It wasn't until the 60s that they started developing the kind of farm system that we have today. Right. Uh, sure. Where you have official player development contracts and an official contracted relationship where you know, the squirrels have their relationship with, with the Giants Mm-hmm. And the Giants supplied the players. The Squirrels supplied the uniforms and the location. Okay. Uh, and, and I think th- while that concept's been around for a long time, a lot of Richmond folks have a different understanding because we had the Braves here, uh-huh. and the Braves were actually owned by the Major League franchise. Right. In most other minor league, Major League relationships, it's a player development contract. And those contracts run in anywhere from two to four-year cycles whereas when when the Braves were here the Braves owned the team so there wasn't a, a changeover of, of that relationship between the major minor sure. league uh,
0: affiliate and and it seemed like some of them had have multiple AAA A teams like it seemed like you know when the Virginians were here they weren't the only triple A team for the Yankees
1: correct but the way it's the way it's set up now, all the major league teams have one AAA team, one A team, one high A, one a, low A, and then a rookie league team. They, they have a, a formal player development contract. I think the Braves are still the only team that owns their minor league affiliates uh, throughout the different levels. Some of the other teams might own some of the lower levels, but most of the others have an independent ownership group.
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess uh, I, you mentioned squirrels provide place where they play which is obviously a you know pretty controversial right now where exactly play. um but it was uh you know it was really tate i mean not not tate field parker field is the first one that the city built right aren't are the other ones it seems like they uh it,
1: it, they were all built by the individual owners correct yeah yeah um
0: and is there any kind of um like, why, why does that change? Like, at what point is that... I mean, is it societal? Is it working other places? E- exactly.
1: Or? That's That was the norm.
0: Okay. Because um, it seems like they're, you know, up until that it's like, I'm going to build this, build it, build it. And then they're like, wait, you build it.
1: But also, those earlier structures weren't the permanent structures that we have today. Okay. Uh, you know, you could build a ballpark within just a couple weeks. Sure. Uh, because it was more just a... You know, wooden bleachers uh, there wasn't a whole lot a whole lot of other infrastructure sure built along with it even some of those early early clubs didn't even have a clubhouse or a dressing room the the teams would change at their hotel and then would caravan to the ballpark and read instances particularly in the the early years in the I think the nineteen teens or early nineteen hundreds of Richmond fans would line the the route to from the, the visiting team's hotel and harass the visiting players before oh, they before they even get to the ball field. Excellent, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so, there's also, um,
0: yeah, speaking of the caravans, I can't even remember what year it was. Like right after 1900 that they had the first motorcade. Right, the first motorcade which is
1: awesome. Which I thought was interesting to read in the paper that they highlighted that it was the first motorcade and they assembled. All the motor vehicles of the city, and it amounted to eight that were involved yeah. in in the uh, in the parade. I'm trying to figure out. It, how it was that an down. opening day parade. Uh, yeah, yeah, and they they had bands play. It was it was it was a pageant, and you know, opening day still is to to some extent. Uh, you know, growing up in in Cincinnati in the '70s, where the Reds always had the the official opening day start at the time, be, going back to their roots as the first openly professional team in uh, 1869 Major League Baseball always started in Cincinnati it was a holiday schools let out early there was a big parade Uh, so that's how I I grew up with opening day as a holiday that's that's amazing because there was one of the days
0: that I remember reading in the books where the the mayor actually made it the half day holiday and encouraged people to close um, which would just be fantastic like I mean I just think that's you know the amount of controversy that goes on. Like if Dwight Jones right now is like, "Why don't y'all all close your businesses?" And it well, just... we're
1: a very different society, larger society. You know, the population numbers were a lot smaller back then. Too. Sure. So they, it was easier to do that.
0: Um, I, I it just, it just seems. I, I I don't know. It just would be amazing. Yeah. Well,
1: also, baseball was one of the, the the primary forms of entertainment. You know the you didn't have the other major league sports you didn't have the uh, you know the, the theme parks or the other distractions or or other vehicles of entertainment baseball was was kind of it right uh, so it was it was it was very different and especially when you get to
0: um you know pre-radio I guess as well so yeah. to actually go out and see that kind of stuff like live that um, was the only way it's to, pretty amazing to get the access was to go there or The next day in the paper. Sure, Um, which was another spectacular thing. That again, I'm just bouncing all over that. I just keep thinking of these things that where I guess who's Joe Lewis fight? It was a boxing match, right? Right, and that they were worried that no one would show up to the game at Tate Field, so they actually broadcast the radio inside the stadium, right? So that people would come watch and listen to the like it's like picture in picture. TV before TV.
1: Exactly. Or you even saw instances of something similar with in the early 1900s when baseball was so popular, again, prior to the radio being common, that people would go downtown outside the newspaper office and the newspaper office set up a scoreboard right. outside their window and as they would get the the, the wire reports... They would post what's happening, and the crowd got so great the city had to close down the streets because people were there watching the watching the World Series play out on a scoreboard on on the side of a you know side of an office outside a window. That's
0: fantastic. Um, I mean, that's like so dull. Yeah, like so awesome. I mean, like that, that was smokes. cutting
1: edge technology. At
0: the yeah, point. absolutely. Like that's like you <laughs> yeah you don't have a whole lot going on. If right. That's like if that's what you're.
1: Different than being able to get the MLB package for your cell phone and, uh, you know, smartphone and be able to watch any game you want, every game.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Um, And the... uh, So, I guess a lot of the... um, Oh, man. And also, I forgot, like, Jesse Owens came out. I saw that Jesse Owens came out as one of the gimmicks. Right. um, At Tate Field, right?
1: They would do all kinds of things, whether it was Olympians to come out and do races. uh, They would... have everything from the, the House of David baseball team, which was yes n- known for their you know their big bushy beards, and this was before lights were even there. They had their own light assembly system, right? So that the they first could lit game set up
0: in in two hours. In, uh, um, that's and yes, they brought their own lights. And like, right. it's kind of talking who the, who the House of David.
1: That I don't they, remember all. of It, it was mostly you um, know some of them were there were actually a couple of retired ballplayers, but it was a religious okay. group. Right, uh, yeah. They would actually go around playing baseball in their, uh, you know, in a very orthodox Jewish dress. Right, and they, and they had their beards, but Grover Cleveland Alexander played with them, but he was clean shaven. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. so he, he was kind of the ringer on yeah, the yeah. team, but they would go around playing close to hundred exhibition games and winning most of them.
0: And like not like little beards, it, no, big like enormous
1: it, ZZ Top kind of beards. Yeah,
0: fantastic! Like the RVA Beer League would be proud exactly. to, to know about them. Exactly, um, and they actually bring their own lights. They had to which, because very few ballparks had lights, and and, and you this know the they first sh- lit game. But uh, so I, that was the thing I was wondering. I don't know if it gave you any details in the newspaper, but how the heck do they bring lights? You know. Like, what are they, are they plugging them in? They, or are they, they said battery The packs?
1: newspaper said it was, they had their own light assembly system. They had poles that they could erect. It would take them about two hours to get everything set up prior to the game. So the, the Richmond team would play its regular day game. Then everything would get set up for the night game exhibition.
0: Right, because I'm only assuming they're electric. Right, I mean, there could have been gas lamps in
1: the in the twenties. That would have been yeah, some variety of electricity.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's insane. Um, and also, because um, I guess a lot of, that's not at Tatefield, Field though. That's like much earlier, right? I can't
1: even remember where it was, but um, I think it was at one of the Broad Street parks, it, even that, or it was Island Field, um, because Island Field started being used on a regular basis in the early twenties.
0: Okay. Um, and the one of the things I think is fantastic about that as well is they bring out clowns like the well, um, clowns like bands they they would do all kinds of things but it's like Harlem Globetrotter style it, kind of right like doing baseball clown stuff
1: kind of Which is e- Exactly.
0: Um because I guess I, I, the, I've seen like pictures of the dudes doing that the House of David team
1: yeah and they were known for their pepper routine
0: oh really the House of yeah. David guys were yeah okay um,
1: and yeah, so they have choreographed exactly choreographed exhibitions before the game started. You're right, kind of like the Globetrotters. That's great. Right. That. Which I actually got to see for the first time in a while this past uh, this past year. When Globetrotters? We, trotters. When we went home to Cincinnati my uh, over Christmas break, my uh, the, the Globetrotters Trotters are in town, and you know my dad and I took the boys down. To, That's excellent to see the Globetrotters Trotters had cool. seen them in about 15 20 years and they were doing a lot of the, the same gaps yeah. they were doing but just it, like it, some of these it, traveling baseball
0: it's a good show teams though teams would do too yeah not, not paid by the Globetrotters but good show they you know they're uh, um and the uh you know Washington Generals they always you know they are a lesson that you've won once and you keep on showing up exactly so you keep on trying you're going to exactly. get that second victory at some point they,
1: they were on NPR last week after um, no I forget the, the guy that founded the generals uh, passed away last week oh I mean, really it was two weeks ago Yeah. huh how about so that heard a story on NPR about yeah, I mean, I have the to, founding I have to, of the Globetrotters look that up yeah um, and uh,
0: you know so I guess we're, we're kind of getting a little bit past the 30s now but um, yeah. within like in the 40s because um, you get like that's when like Eddie Moore comes in in the the, late, the right. early 30s
1: um, and, and I think nationally we get more of a focus on baseball into the forties, fifties, into the sixties. You know, when you go to the games, you don't have the, the carnivals and the sideshows as much. You know, you still do it some of the minor leagues, but the focus is more on baseball. Mm-hmm. And then it's in the modern era where we really get back to kind of the the baseball as an entertainment outing. Sure, uh, like what you get at a Squirrels game, whether it's the the promotions, the contests. Uh, you know, trying to come up with the different kind of foods. That they have at the minor league parks, and right. it seems every minor league park is, is trying to up itself on who can have the the most outlandish kind of food item, right?
0: And it's and it's interesting because the, you mentioned the you know the early guys were you know owning movie theaters and vaudeville yeah. and stuff, um, and you know while you know car dealers get like a bum rap a lot, but a lot of those guys are in the same business. Right? With the commercials, and, you know, it's a race to see who's got the most entertaining commercial to get you down for, you know, most outlandish sale or.
1: Morris, I think that being a car dealer is incidental to the fact that he was originally a ball player. Okay. You know, yeah. He played for the Richmond team. He he actually got a, a call up and invite to Yankees camp and stayed with them for you know a month into the season while he didn't get into a game. He he played with the Baltimore teams. He came back as a player manager um, mm-hmm. of, of the Richmond team. Being a car dealer afforded him the opportunity to be able to buy the team when it became available in the early thirties. Sure. And and what's is the, what's that team? That's the Virginians. No, that, that was
0: still the Colts. The Colts, okay. And yeah. where and where he actually builds his own stadium? He, there, he actually... ended up
1: building his stadium in later. You no, know, when he first bought the team, they were playing at West End Field, uh, which is what's been home of the Kickers right now, and mm-hmm. was home in the the Spiders. Uh, okay, uh, over you know a little bit off of the the main path. So, you know that was. That was the field where they were playing, and he ended up buying the team from the city. Uh, the team had gone into financial straits, and the league actually took over the team, and the team was in receivership. That's you right. Know, similar to similar to what happened with Montreal and you know Major League Baseball acquired the team major league baseball owned the team for a while before they sold and, and they moved and became the washington nationals right the Richmond team was actually in receivership by the league uh was taken over by the city administration and then morse ended up buying the team yeah that's that's exciting and and I wonder the um
0: that being able to have city stadium i mean that's yeah. really to have a stadium theres because you can have cars now. Right, Because I mean, the, yeah. the trolley line's going to go out in 49. And,
1: but they only played at City Stadium for a year or two. Okay. And, and then they went back to Island Park. Right. And, and they played at Island Park. Moores was getting frustrated with the floods, was getting frustrated uh, you know, by the parking and, and people being able to get there because cars are becoming more popular. Mm-hmm. And then you, you, know, when there was a fire that burned half of the grandstand, that's when he said, I, I think I've had enough. Sure, and that's cause... when he built his own field.
0: I think um, the it also shows. It, I think it's interesting. He, you know, he 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 tried to manage for a while, right? and It didn't go very well because he had a bit of an attitude, right? Got yep. got kicked out a lot, um, which I did also find really exciting. They didn't get kicked out; they got banished. Okay, I, that was like the terminology that, that you guys did, use. Yes, yeah,
1: and that was in the, the chapter the, Doctor Daniel wrote. So okay.
0: I, I, well, it was a lot of the newspaper quotes right. as well and that, that that's they would the say. the newspaper quote banished, banished from, then, from the game. And like the first time I read it, I was like, "Oh wow, he's <laughs> he's done with baseball and they're no, like No, but you know, it was
1: just banished from right the no,
0: game, from that that it's game. So much more dramatic. <laughs> Nowadays, you know, <laughs> well,
1: a, you, you go back and read the papers, it's a very different language. Right. That was used. Sure. Uh, which which made it interesting to to do the research.
0: Right. Uh, and he he ended up having to quit managing because he was kicked out so many times and or banished so many times. Right. Um, and well, he th-
1: he thought it was better for him to have someone else do. Sure.
0: Yeah. Um, but then it also, I thought within that same vein, he's the only he's or he's I guess the first one, only one I know of that actually built a stadium and named it after himself. It was
1: more common practice. Okay. Uh, so it. it wasn't something that he did. Uh, it was something most of the other teams did. Okay. You know, you go to Chattanooga. You played at Engel Stadium. Engle was the owner. You, right. You go to a lot of the other cities had had would, stadiums that were named after but, after the owner. But would and and I guess
0: that would also play into I guess what I was thinking more um, was oh, right, more um, more of a branding thing, right? Because he's got a car dealership. You know, I, I was thinking more like Wrigley Field. Right. Right. Which. You know, nowadays it's every, everything's Petco Park and you know every day right. thing. But um, you know, it was owner branding his own product. Right. The Wrigleys are selling chewing gum, so they're going to mm-hmm. own the team. And exactly um, where before it didn't seem doesn't seem like they really even have a name. You know, it's West End Park. Right. That's not Bro-
1: a, Broad Street Park. Broad right. Street Park One. Broad Street Park Two.
0: Right. So there's not even the,
1: the only real instance of a named field was when they renamed Island Field Tate Field sure and that was in honor of one of the guys that was on one of the earliest baseball teams in Richmond had gone on to a major league career mm-hmm. and then came back to the city and was active uh, active in, as a policeman and involved with the, the clubs coming out right and his Pop Tate um,
0: is right. what he went by right right um, and I uh, it was
1: Christopher Edward Pop Tate I think is his full name something yeah, like the pop. I think seems. if I remember correctly, but yeah. Pop Tate was right. what he was
0: known as. Kind of like a little, yeah. like a local celebrity. Exactly. That, that uh, and
1: and the field was named after him.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Um, but the you know, and that itself is even, you know, I mean the Yankees aren't going to name their field Jeter right. Field, right? And that ain't happening. It ain't right. happening at all, right? The, unless someone's got to give up a exactly. you know, billion dollars to, to and the, change the, the name. closest
1: they get is the you know the house that Ruth built the, as the nickname.
0: Right, sure.
1: But otherwise, it's Yankee Stadium. Yeah, and and also Tate never played at Tate Field, did he? He would played exhibition games. Okay, he right. came out and he was still he was still an active presence, okay. which is why they honored him with that. Right, um, and so I guess
0: Moore's he did definitely keep the Colts here, and it was an actual league that actually, I mean, Correct. The, a team that you could now...
1: Variations moving from the, the Virginia league to the Piedmont league. There was a, a, a series of different leagues and they were constantly trying to move up in higher classification.
0: Right. And, and it seemed like it's something that's pretty important where you can actually, um, you know, something to hold on to, right? I'm now rooting for the same team that was here last year, as opposed to a lot of those early teams you know, they didn't. The names would be different. You know, a lot of the players are—they're not even in the same league. They're playing different you know, teams
1: for a lot of that time. Even though it was un- unstable, a lot of those early leagues were—you know—they were either trying to get into a larger mid-Atlantic league to, as part of the boosterism of trying to put Richmond with some of the the names of the other big cities. Or it was mostly local leagues. Uh, you know, for a long time, the Virginia League was the big league, and Richmond and Norfolk were the two main cities. And then it would kind of rotate around with, uh, you know, with Danville, with Petersburg, with Portsmouth, um, and, you know, Roanoke, Lynchburg, and some of the other cities that that came and went. Right. Uh, and Richmond was so important to the league that a lot of those leagues actually made it so that all the Saturday games and all the holidays that occurred during the baseball season Richmond was home right? Uh, because they actually had even as early as the the 1890s some kind of you know disbursement of league funds Mm -hmm. and arrangements where the visiting team got a share of the purse and you know everything was shared amongst the league so they wanted the Richmond team to be home so the league would make more money.
0: Sure. And, and I guess it seems like um, I mean I guess you can correct me if I'm wrong it seemed yeah. like the um, they were kind of cursed by the um, travel um, and the fact that you know Richmond and Norfolk seemed like they were continually the best or never, just just not good enough to be you know, in with DC or, right. you know, in with the next tier up. So it's like they're bigger, they're bigger than all the other, you know.
1: They were by far the bigger of the, the Virginia League teams. Right. have but no business being in the league with were, Danville,
0: but it's the only place. Geographically, yeah. they were
1: separate from the northern cities. It was harder to get to them. And there were instances where they were in a league doing well, but the league was kind of struggling. So at a league meeting, they decide. They need to cut back in Richmond and Norfolk would often get dropped because they were geographically distant. Sure, yeah, and, and didn't seem like anyone cared
0: about like they, they would drop folks at the <laughs> at a club Teams were closing, you know. Um,
1: and I think that was the nature of the game at the time, though. Yeah, um, you know, as baseball was getting established, right? You saw a lot more of that that changeover.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And um, so I guess you know the. Uh, Moore's is actually bringing, you know, kind of getting back to that. So you have this yeah. a team that is the Colts. I mean, is he then branding the Colts and actually selling Colts stuff? I mean, when you when you go to a memorabilia, I'm assuming you're gonna see a lot more of that. But it's gonna stop saying Richmond team. It's gonna start saying the Colts. Great.
1: Definitely saw saw stuff that said said Colts. How much you're going to find and how much they got in branding of T-shirts and hats. I don't know, wasn't around at the time and haven't found a lot of that out there. Okay. But you're certainly gonna start seeing more of that as the idea of marketing starting right. to change before it was more just the uh, you know, the scorecards, you know you know maybe uh, you know, the as the, the bubblegum cards or the, the cigar cards were, were starting to get popular and sure. they would make those. Uh so it was more collectible like that. But I think it's much later that you start to get the the branding that we know today, where you can go out and find twenty different versions of the team hat that you sure. can, can wear, in right. eighteen different t shirts, and you and know a team has five t shirts, so that you buy the Sunday t shirt, the night t shirt, the day t shirt, the sure. <laughs> the camouflage one for exactly. Memorial Day, yeah. and the, um,
0: but the I think the you know in those days as well, it seemed like it wasn't quite as much a um, you know, well I guess. The, through the, through the newspaper's eyes, he kept, keeps claiming that, um, I think it's the Phillies and the Gi- Giants are going to be giving him players, as opposed to you know the minor league system we think of now where the Squirrels are here, and while they're here to be an incredible base, they're really here to make sure the Giants have enough players. And he keeps saying, no, these pro teams are going gonna- to...
1: The, the way it is now, the Squirrels are focused on the fan experience. Yeah, the Giants have control of the players. Right. The Squirrels don't engage contracts with the players at all. That's where the difference is. These guys were engaging in the contracts, but with those arrangements, they're having to fill their roster. They're getting a lot of their own players, but as the the farm system starts, that's where you start seeing some of the major league teams supplying players to some of the local teams also, but they're also looking at the local teams to supply the players. Sure. So they they aren't building a full roster and, and you know, the players contract is gonna be with the the Richmond Colts rather than than the Phillies, whereas the guys on the the Flying Squirrels, their contract is with the Giants. They're assigned to the Flying Squirrels. Right.
0: And so I guess the, uh, the as you did mention it, you know, the race relations part you didn't look look into that much but um, they have the first black player in Richmond right of pro player I think you, on the Colts correct
1: the, it wasn't until the the early fifties yeah uh, so it took a while uh, in fact you know when Jackie Robinson was playing for Montreal mm-hmm. before he moved up to uh, to the Dodgers. Morris actually refused to have his team play the Montreal team because oh, okay. there was a, a black player. Yeah, uh, just, so I mean, it took several years, and, and it wasn't until the we, early '50s that, that Richmond and, and and the the league that they were in it, it even brought in you know black players. Yeah, it was one of, it was 1953.
0: Yeah, um, and it was mm-hmm. the six years after um, after Jackie Robinson, a guy named a right. uh, Whit Whit, Braves, Whit Graves, um, which. Uh, <laughs> Wow, it seems like a long time. Uh, i was actually kind of surprised in a good way that Richmond, you know, understanding it's six years, but it's like, wow, only six years for yeah. Richmond, you know? It, <laughs> wow, it, it, exactly. You know, well, could have been twenty. And
1: <laughs> the South, in general, has an interesting, interesting race history, right? Whether it's baseball, whether it's segregation of schools, you, you know, you, you look and see that many southern cities were were a lot farther behind other parts of the country right um, and is, is there any kind of um, I, I don't know I know that
0: Richmond had a pretty long you know well back of Indians like Native Americans right I mean are they I mean I don't know why I don't know I guess this is a much bigger conversation that we should probably yeah. an entire thing but like it's, a, it's just always interesting that it's you know north and south it's black and white and uh, you know I know there's on the pro level there's you know Cubans mm-hmm. black Cubans but not black Americans and even times when they've tried to pa- pla- pass light skinned blacks off as Native Americans right right um, you know the uh, I just think that's you know especially by name you know always naming teams the Indians and the Chiefs and you're like oh yeah but there's actually they're an actual Indian on the team right so, um I don't know, I just think that's really interesting. Again, we probably Yeah, and there's
1: it. actually there are a lot of great books that explore those topics in, in detail. It's it's an area that I haven't had the time to do as much research right. as yeah, I and we I don't I'd think like we can have
0: near enough time to, to, yeah. to delve into that, but yeah. um I just think that's a really I, I just it's just really I need to read one of those books and have another episode with somebody that does that. <laughs> um but the do. Do they move into Parker Field, or the Colts, or is that when? Is that afterwards?
1: No, when Parker Field was, Parker field was actually a recreational field or a park that, okay. that was used, and you no, know, the the Colts were playing at, at Moore's location, which, which was not far, which was not far, the corner of I think Roseneath and Norfolk, okay. so just a few blocks. To the west of where Parker Field is, mm-hmm. it was in '54 when the International League's team from Baltimore came down to Richmond. Uh, okay. That you know the city had an opportunity to move to higher classification because the International League was at, at the highest level. Mm-hmm. Moore's wanted to continue his team, but city interest won out. They bought. You know people were able to buy the team. The International League team was moved here when the the St. Louis team moved into uh, to Baltimore. Okay. Baltimore went back to the American League. So Moores moved his team down to Portsmouth and then eventually sold his team. And that's when he converted Moores Field to an auto racetrack. And huh. y- I've seen pictures on the Times Dispatch site or into many studios or at the, uh, the Historical Society where you see you know an auto racetrack built up in, into the infield now field where the baseball field was. Wow. Um, so... More started moving in that direction. And that's when Parker Field, the the wooden, the first or, original wooden grandstand was built, and they had to do some refurbishments because it, it was used as recreational location.
0: Sure, and and the um, when the, the Baltimore Baltimore Orioles are moved here, right? That's part of the deal. Is they say we need a stadium. Would they need a- if you're gonna if
1: we're gonna be down here, yeah. you have to. And they need to meet the higher level specifications the expectations of them. Right. Um, which incidentally that's the second time a Baltimore team moved to Richmond and Richmond moved into the International League because it also happened in the uh, 19-teens right and I think it I believe it
0: left just as um, Babe Ruth was coming in or correct you... in,
1: in fact if the timing had worked right Ruth would have actually played for Richmond uh, it was when the Federal League Came in, which was an outlaw league, and they established a team in Baltimore. Uh, they were the Baltimore Terrapins. They played directly across the street from the Orioles mm-hmm. uh, because the Federal League was recognized by a lot of people as a rival major league. Uh, people would flock. You'd get twenty thousand people at, at Terrapins games, and they were lucky to get a couple thousand at the Orioles games, even though the Orioles probably had the better team. Right, <laughs> yeah. uh, and you no, know, the owner was trying to get out of that situation, and he approached the, the folks in Richmond. The league didn't want to give up Richmond because mm-hmm. they, they would lose all those gate receipts, sure. and, and they needed the money. They wanted to keep a Richmond team. So Jack Dunn had to start selling off his players. Mm-hmm. And then, ironically, in the offseason, he was able to work a deal with, the, with the, uh, the Virginia League, and the Richmond team transferred to another city, and the Baltimore team. Moved on down to Richmond, and Richmond was in the international league for a couple of years.
0: Yeah, and um, so, and that's, are they, they're not at that point a farm team of the Yankees yet, right? N- no,
1: that was prior to when the, the farm system really started. Okay, so that was just an independent, yeah, regular. The, the the farm team really got started with, uh, you know, Branch Rickey when he was with the Cardinals organization in the 20s. I think he's he's credited with the one that really Developed that and that led to the gas house gang in, in St. Louis in the 30s. Sure, right.
0: Yeah. So, so, and it is interesting because, and I do know also the other thing wasn't just the um, stadium, it was also beer. They said, we have to have, be able to sell alcohol oh. as well, which I think is, you know, again, going back to that, it just, it's something we take you, for granted today. Thank you for that because there's nothing better than being at the park with a dog and well, the, beer. I mean, right.
1: that's. <laughs> well, and that's something, you know, prior to. Going back to the earlier part of the conversation, prior to prohibition, alcohol was pretty typical at the at the ballparks, sure. and you know many of the owners were brewers or distillers. Right. So in that cross branding, as, as you called it, they wanted to sell their product there. Absolutely. Prohibition really changed a lot of things, and then it took a while after after prohibition was repealed before I think alcohol started getting. Is accepted in a lot of social places that that we take it for granted today, right? And that you know, it's one of the things I think that uh, you get a little into
0: World War II in the book, but um, it was something I was really interested. In. Did, you, yeah. did you get a feeling that um, the Depression um, and you know, I, I think normally during hard times, entertainment goes up, right? But the that was something during Prohibition. It just seems like a lot of people do go to ball games to get drunk. You know, and um, while I, I love baseball. But you go and you're like, there's a right. couple dudes right there. They just they wanted to. It's an outdoor bar, right? Um, I mean, so it seems like that's going to hurt things like baseball, especially if it's out in the open. You know,
1: you it's not a speakeasy. It's it's. But the idea, the the concept of entertainment was very different then. You, you didn't have your t- TV. You you didn't have other things that you could go off and do you were limited on what you could do and baseball was still it and that's when you know some people really highlight kind of the golden age of baseball started out of that era in the 30s sure and into the 40s and 50s and in fact that's how dr daniel and i got together was him focusing on that era on the golden age of baseball sure uh part of it was changes to the game you know with uh the new baseball that came about in the 1920s, with the technology allowing the the twine to be wrapped tighter, mm-hmm. created the lively ball. Uh, Ruth and the home run, right? You know, created an interest. All that's happening during the the Prohibition era, mm-hmm. and um, and I and I guess going to
0: the ball. I can't believe how much I'm jumping around on this, but <laughs> it's happening. So there was a Richmond had a few few players that were uh, I remember seeing. I think three or four. That had played either here and then went to the majors, or on the majors and came back. That were um, grandfathered in with the spitball. Right. Um, and I guess the. Do you know when, what year the spitball was outlawed? Uh,
1: I forget. I used to know exactly. But yeah, that's I, I fine. I forget the year now.
0: Um, but it, it, that's really fantastic too. Like, like, like the steroids thing now. Right. If, if they were like, you know, Sammy. Same as you know, Mark McGuire, You guys were doing it, so we'll allow you to keep doing it, right? While everyone else stops. Um, but it was a handful—sixteen, seventeen fellas. That I think were, there
1: was twenty-one guys that were okay. were allowed to continue. Uh, one of them was a prominent player for Richmond, Burley Grimes, who yes. who ended up being elected into the Hall of Fame. Right. Uh, who was one of those guys grandfathered in?
0: That's uh it, that's such a bizarre. Yeah.
1: And while there was a lot of turnover in those early years, as as we talked about, you know, you highlighted there were some great players. Mm-hmm. Yeah. you know, in my research, there were actually three Hall of Famers: Burley Grimes being one of them, uh, Jack Chesbro, another one in the uh, I forget if it was the eighteen nineties or early nineteen hundreds who who was on the Richmond Club, uh, and then uh, Chief Al Bender, right? Uh, you know, who famous with the A's, who after his major league career was a playing manager with the with the Richmond team, moved on to another team and then came back for a second stint. So there were actually some some great Hall of Famers that, that right. pitched for Richmond clubs at that time too. And I believe he took over when Moore,
0: Maybe that wasn't him. No, it was prior. Um it was before Moore?
1: Uh did, did he actually manage? No, I think he he No, you're right. It was his second stint was coming back. Yeah. Uh in the Eddie Moore's era.
0: Right. Which is excellent as well just because it's, you know, more, I mean, uh, the fact that they just called, like, you're an Indian, so they just called you Chief. Right. Like, that was, like, the go-to nickname. And that was the standard nickname. Yeah, that was.
1: <laughs> uh, baseball was known for its interesting nicknames Absolutely. at that time. I mean, with, You know, whether it's Babe Ruth, which Babe was another common nickname, whether it was someone that was really young or someone that, that looked young you know, Bay was often a nickname. Uh Rube was often a nickname given to guys, particularly if they weren't necessarily the smartest. Sure. Smartest sure. guy out there. Sure. Uh Rube was a a common nickname yeah. that you see with a lot
0: of those guys. And and you know, and I guess the other, I was loved as well that the um especially you know that I mean that's that would be totally racist. You know, that people would freak out if you just started calling an Indian dude chief all the time. Yeah. Um the the Redskins controversy. Um, but the Richmond Braves were the Atlanta Crackers, correct? Which is fantastically racist. I mean, that's like so amazing that you know. I guess it's the '50s, but it's still. I don't know the sensibilities were very different. Very different. <laughs> very very different. Mm-hmm. Um, that's spectacular. Um, and so the uh, um, but I guess kind of go. What happened to the Colts? Like the uh, those last Morris Colts. They, they, Oh, yeah, so we talked. They went right. back to, to Portsmouth. They, um, they
1: went to, I I thought it was Petersburg. I think Petersburg. Okay. They, they moved. Yeah. And I think they they made it for a year and then moved on to another. Mm. You know, he sold the team. Right. And, and so we have that
0: team in the International League. Yeah. Um, But is, he, is it, uh, when is it the Virginians are going to come back in here with the Yankees farm team? Because that's going to be the next big. Well, it,
1: that was the team from Baltimore moved down to Richmond, and they became the Virginians, and they were with us from... What, 54 to 60? So it was 65. Only, yeah, okay. It, it, they were here for about a decade. Right, okay. And, and then we had a one year without baseball,
0: and then the Braves came in. Okay, and the, uh, so I'm assuming that, the, that when the Virginians were here, uh, I know I've seen a couple of times the spatula Post every once in a while, like Mickey Mantle or something yeah. coming down. Um, but, I mean, it seems, it does seem like there's not as much as, I always I always feel like it's weird that those pictures and stuff are as rare as they are, you know. I, I don't know. That's a weird. I mean, they play every year, but it's like our. Isn't is that not going to be more common? You know, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I, well, I I know the Times Dispatch has a number of pictures. Too studios has pictures. Uh, the Historical Society and the Valentine Museum all, all have a lot of pictures mm. from that era. So there's a number of different different photos. From when those uh when the Yankees teams came down. It, sure. And so I know there's there's a lot that exist. Right. And so are yeah. the the Braves are gonna come in,
0: um and they're playing at Parker Field and is there any kind of uh you know are they making demands at that point or is it just like we've got
1: a field and this is all you know? From what I could tell they they were happy with the field at the time. Okay. Um, the idea of ballparks was also very very different then too. Sure, you know when Parker Field started getting a little dilapidated, and you, you had the the big cookie cutter stadiums in Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, St. Louis, Philadelphia, Atlanta was right around the time when the uh, you know they they were the popular stadiums at the time when the Diamond was built, and sure. the, the Diamond was modeled off of those, and you, you can even see the the similar kind of look. It's right. I remember as a As a kid, while I didn't grow up in Richmond, we always went to the Outer Banks and had a stopover in Williamsburg. So we rode on 64 by the field. And I remember distinctly that summer, because I knew when we saw the ball field and got to Richmond, that we were only about an hour away from Williamsburg. And we'd been driving for a long time. And I remember seeing, look, they built a one-third riverfront stadium. Right, sure. <laughs> you know, they built a partial riverfront stadium, uh, right? And, and that was kind of the modern ballpark. Yeah, at the time, uh, you know, it was the early '90s when Camden Fields, uh, you know, Camden Yards came up, and that that really changed how people look at ballparks. Sure. Uh, um. And uh.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean. And it, it, yeah, it goes back to the old, the older style of bricks
1: and everything. And, it's. And, and I don't know if you've been to Chicago and the new Comiskey I have that not was, seen new, the new that yet. was built at the same time as Camden and that has a little bit of the, the modern style mm-hmm. that Camden but it's still the concrete and steel and you have a little more of a feel of being in one of those older ballparks from the 70's and 80's right? Uh, and it it's why people don't think of Camden or of Comiskey, the new Comiskey, the same way they think of of Camden because Camden really changed sure. how people look at ballparks. Right. One of the things that I thought was amazing when the Braves actually
0: came, you're talking about the book that they had a parade down broad up to Willow Lawn and then back up and that apparently one of uh, uh, I guess Pat Jarvis got a neck injury, injury because they had to stop quickly and was on the DL for 10 days which is Holy smokes. I know there's, you know, baseball has the weirdest injuries of, like, you know, guys guy sprained his back carrying deer one time. Right.
1: Like, or Joel Zamaya famously uh, had to miss a playoff game because he uh, hurt his wrist from Guitar Hero. That's right. With the Tigers.
0: Yeah. And Just the weirdest. You know, I think Sammy Sosa threw his back on one time sneezing, sneezing. he claimed. You know, right. so um, stopping, a quick stop in a parade, I think, is, or, is up there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's pretty amazing 10 days just missed 10 days because of a parade um, but uh, but yeah I mean I think that there's like a million things that we could continually get to um, but we kind of covered on the last baseball baseball episode I kind of did more of the brave stuff so yeah and the I, I think
1: the brave stuff is what more people know yeah it, it's it's more familiar so that's why I think it was great to be able to talk about an era that people aren't as familiar with, yeah. Which is why I decided to do, you know, embrace this as a, as a thesis topic because when I started to look around, you know, when Doctor Daniel and I were talking, I couldn't find any books on Richmond's right. baseball past. Sure, you know, or maybe it's a brief mention in, you know, a history of the International League. but right. There weren't even books on the history of the the Virginia League or, uh, you know, the Piedmont Leagues or sure. or any of the other leagues and you know it, there was just there wasn't much there you gotta do it so that's what Make made it happen a fun project to do
0: that's awesome um, well I guess unless you got something else um, no that's great yeah fantastic thanks Excellent. for your
1: time very good Good. thanks for taking an interest
0: absolutely that was it thanks a ton Scott uh, I want to thank him thank him for his interest thanks him for doing all the research and, again, the book is called Baseball and Richmond, A History of, Professional, of the Professional Game, 1884-2000. to 2000. Uh, Also, you can go back and listen to the, the first baseball episode. Um, go check that out. Again, check out all the episodes. Pick and choose. Whatever you want to do. Uh, let me know about the, the podcast, what you think of this episode, or any others. To suggest a guest. Uh, you can do that at historyreplaystoday.org. You can email me Jeff Major J E F F M A J E R at historyreplaystoday.org. org. You can check it out on Twitter at History Replays, Facebook, Tumblr, whatever you do. Let me know what you think of the podcast. It's it, you know it means a lot to me when you when you reach re- reach out to me. Um, but also you know support the podcast, uh, donate if you can. If you've listened this far, uh, you've probably enjoyed it so. Go to historyreplacetoday.org, click on support. You'll find a button there. It's very easy to donate. just takes a couple minutes. Um, If you don't have the money, write a review for the podcast. uh, Wherever you're listening to this, iTunes or wherever it is, write a review. If you don't have time for that, just tell a friend. Tell a friend what you heard. um, And
1: uh, as always, make it a great day.